Amen, amen, amen. God is good. And all the time, I wasn't even looking for that. Y'all got me with it. Amen. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, praise God. It's so good to see so many kids in here today. Amen. Y'all don't know. Y'all bring life. Y'all bring life. Amen. It's so great to see the kids and uh, excited that we'll be getting started with uh, children's ministry uh, down the line here in a little bit. Uh, before I go into the sermon today, I just want to make a few other announcements, just kind of uh, let people know a few things that are going on here uh, and some decisions that are being made as well. Um, you already heard about Living Water Church. We'll be meeting in the ministry center. They were supposed to start today, but they're not because someone there uh, tested positive, and so they're putting it off right now. But I'm just so excited for us to be able to host another church. It's a small church, second-generation Cambodian church that was looking for a place, and we, we can give that place and let God do his work. Amen. Also, just want to give a, a quick, quick update on finances for the church. We're having a, a normal year where we always fall a little bit behind at the beginning of the year. Uh, we're not in a place that is alarming in that regard at all. It's kind of normal. Uh, but in the midst of all this, also, we applied for a paycheck protection loan or a PPP loan. And by God's grace, that was granted to us. Amen. And so... We got a $74,000 loan that can help to pay salaries. I think it can also do some other things to pay for rent or I don't know. But we're going to use it the way we're supposed to use it so that on the other side of it, and I, I just see people saying, no, you can't use it that way. Okay, we won't use it that way. We're going to use it all for salary. And, and at the end of it, it, it will be forgiven. So uh, that's that's a blessing to us. Wanted to let you know. Two other things. One... Um, if you were here when we did the uh, sermons on the state of the church and then subsequent to that, we did um, a, a congregational meeting. We talked about a new ministry, Safe Harbor Ministry, dealing with things around racial reconciliation and justice. Um, and we were going to get that ministry started this month in terms of doing something for the whole church. Um, I got a lot of input and feedback and thoughts and prayed. And what we're going to do, we are working on that ministry now. We will be working on it, but we're going to start it in earnest with the whole church in the fall. What we wanted to do was take a little bit of reset, not only to work on that, but all the other things that we talked about in uh, the state of the church, about worship, about prayer, about outreach, about equipping. And so as we hit the fall, we'll hit the ground running on all of those things. Amen. So we're working on that now, but we'll be doing more in the fall. The last thing, and I, I want to pray for just a moment uh, on this, is this week will likely be the verdict in the Derek Chauvin trial, George Floyd. Um, and all of us probably saw it, uh, last year um, that, that terrible, terrible incident, seeing a man's life uh, just taken out of him by asphyxiation as the officer had his knee on his neck. And we, I, I want us as a church 
to really be sensitive to the reality that for many, many people, most of our neighbors in this community, this is a time of incredible tension and great fear. Quite honestly, fear that there won't be accountability for what has happened. And uh, we know that police uh, uh, departments around the country and in Philadelphia are on high alert uh, because of what could happen with a particular verdict there. And so I, I just want us to pray. God has called us as his people to live in solidarity with those who are hurting. And one way we do that is to be praying and also to be saying, as the community of God's gathered people, we want to be in solidarity and understand, no matter where you're at on the political spectrum or anything else, that, that people are really, really hurting and really in fear right now with all of this. If you've seen any of it, and I've just watched very, very little of it, the evidence just seems absolutely overwhelming. And yet there is a great and palpable fear that uh, the verdict won't, uh, won't line up with what our eyes have seen here. So let's pray. Let's pray as a church and let's pray to be a community of God's gathered people who are known for their love and solidarity with our brothers and sisters of color. Amen. Let me pray for that, and then we'll go into today's sermon. Father God, um, there is so much fear right now, and we know that at the end of all things, there won't be any room for fear. Because when you come back and you set everything right, your justice will cover this land, your righteousness and justice will cover this earth, even as the waters cover the sea. But Lord, we're not there right now or quite yet. But Lord, I pray that in this time that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and even our local expression at New Life, that we will be known as a people who love justice and do justice, who love mercy and who walk humbly with our God. And that, Lord, we would be a people who live in solidarity with broken folk all around us, Lord God. Oh, God, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy, I pray, in this coming week. We ask, oh God, that you would help us to represent you well in this time for the praise and for the glory of your great name. Lord, we pray all these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen, amen, and amen. Well, praise the Lord, folks. We are going back into the sermon series that we just started in Mark chapter 1 today. Um, but before I get into reading the scripture, uh, just wanted to say a couple things. I don't know if I'm the only person in this room or who's watching that feels this way, but I have a love-hate relationship with painting. I really do. I'm talking about like painting in the house, right? 
Um, I, I, I love, love, love it when you take a few hours and you're in a room that looked drab and dreary. And in a few hours, you can look at it and it's bright and it's beautiful and it's bursting with, with beauty because of that little work you put in. Listen, there's very few things in my life that work that way. Most of the things I do, I don't see any immediate transformation. But when I put the brush or, or, or the roller on the wall quickly, you see this transformation and I just give glory to my great God. I love painting, but I also hate it with a passion. What I hate is the preparation for the painting. Can somebody say amen to that? The, the, the cleaning, you got to clean everything. You got to make sure there's no dust particles and no dirt anywhere. You, you, you have to sand things down. You, you have to caulk walls and fill in cracks and crevices. Uh, you got to do all of that stuff. And that is absolutely exhausting to me. I dread doing it. And that's why I am a professional procrastinator when it comes to painting. Uh, I, it just takes too much time. But But here's the thing. The, the quality of the paint job is more dependent upon the preparation than anything else. If you prepare the walls correctly, your paint job's going to look good. And if you don't do that, if you don't invest that time up front, it's going to be a jacked up mess, y'all. And y'all know it's true. I have jacked up some rooms by not preparing right. Today is week two in our series on the story of Jesus. And today we're going to look at Jesus' preparation for ministry. And also we're going to peek in on how it is that God prepares each of us for life and doing ministry for his glory. So let's stand together. Let's stand together and we're going to read a few verses here from Mark, the first chapter we're going to read verses 9 through 13. Amen, amen. You are there with me because it's up on the board. So let, let's read together. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. My title today is The Story of Jesus Uniquely Prepared to Save. And the big idea today is simply this. Jesus' unique preparation for ministry foreshadows exactly what you, and I could say you and I, need to prosper in our lives with God. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and for your spirit. So Lord, speak to us now, Lord God, those gathered here and those watching. Speak to our hearts 
and move us as, as we want to be under your hand to prepare us. And as we see the magnificent way in which you prepared the one and only Son of God, our Savior. Lord, bless this time now and use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen and amen. You may be seated. We're going to look at several aspects of what is going on here in, in Jesus' preparation. And as we'll see that, we're also going to look at how that impacts us. And so the first one is simply this. Jesus was prepared for ministry by fully identifying with his humanity. So often as Christians, we, we emphasize, rightly so, the deity of Christ. He's unlike anyone. He is the unique and only Son of God. But too often we also miss how Jesus fully identifies with humanity. Verse 9 puts it simply this way. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. One simple statement, but there's a lot in there. A few verses earlier in Mark's gospel, verse 5, we read that people were coming from all over Judea and all the people from Jerusalem were coming out to be baptized by John in the Jordan. But Jesus was not from those places. He was from Galilee and specifically from a little town called Nazareth. Now, here's what it might look like 2021 version Philadelphia style. You ready? Now, John was in a remote region in the Poconos by the Lehigh River. And the people from Chestnut Hill, from... Center City and from Lower Marion were coming out to be baptized in the Lehi. And at that time, Jesus came from the projects in North Philly to be baptized by John. Now, I know this is a very imperfect analogy. Analogies always are. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus was from a place that people from Judah and Jerusalem looked down on. They look down on it. They look down on Galilee. When, when Jesus comes on the scene later in Jerusalem, people ask in John chapter 7, verse 41, how can the Messiah be from Galilee? That doesn't make any sense to me. How can he be from Galilee? And, and you know that there was an issue with Nazareth as well, right? Even his own disciple, Nathaniel, says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's from Na Nazareth? That little town, that nothing town in that worthless region of Galilee, J Jesus is coming from there to be baptized? Really? Could he really be the Messiah? But here's what I want you to see in this little verse. Jesus not only fully identifies with humanity, but he identifies with those who are considered the least, with those who are considered lowly, with those who have been rejected. Jesus fully identifies with humanity and brokenness. 
the first century reader of Mark's gospel, hearing these words, would be struck by the fact that he comes from Nazareth, a town that's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's just a little tiny dot on the map, nothing going on there. This becomes the ultimate rags to riches story. And Jesus fully embraced his human weakness as a critical characteristic of his preparation. Look at verses 12 and 13 here. Scripture says at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended to him, attended him. I want to focus for a moment here on the fact that the sinless Savior is put in the place of being tempted by Satan for 40 days. This corresponds with the life of the nation of Israel that wandered in the desert for 40 years and over and over again as they tempted, as they were tempted and tried, they failed. They failed the trials. They failed the temptations over and over again. But Jesus now sent out into this unknown wilderness, a harsh place where there are no other people and he does not eat anything for 40 days and 40 nights. And we see this contrast. On the one hand, Satan is there tempting him. And Mark's gospel alone says he's with the wild animals. What what that says is he's in constant danger all the time. Wild animals in the wilderness. Jesus does not have a gun with him. He's in danger. But on the other hand, it's the Holy Spirit that sends him there. And the Bible says, and the angels minister to him in the midst of that harsh place. The whole ministry of Jesus is one of spiritual warfare. The work of Satan on the one hand and God on the other. And so it is for your life and mine. We live in a constant state of warfare. Mark uses a very different verb here than Matthew or Luke use in telling us about how Jesus goes into the wilderness. The NIV translates it that the Spirit sent him out. In the ESV, it translates it, the Spirit drove him out. The word that he uses there is actually the same word used over and over again in Mark's gospel when Jesus casts out demons from demon-possessed people. It's a forceful moving of an object of another. He cast them out. And Jesus, in a sense, is cast out from John's baptism, cast out into the wilderness to be tempted by the enemy, thrust out into a place of temptation, of testing, and of trial. And it's the Holy Spirit doing that. I wonder if anyone has ever felt that way in your own life. You're thrust out into a difficult place. Here you've been doing your best to obey God, to walk with God, and all of a sudden you're thrust out into a difficult place of weakness, of trial and temptation. And Jesus is feeling 
like you would feel. He feels the full weakness and the frailty of his humanity in that moment. Jesus identifies fully with humanity. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 for just a moment. These words amaze me. The scripture says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, and in the Greek, that, that, that's phrased this way, in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. There's so much in these verses that we can't get into today, but, but they speak of the full humanity of Jesus. He needed to rely relentlessly on God. Jesus did not live out of his divinity, but out of his human weakness. Because of this, and when the scripture says, in the days of his flesh, it's talking about his human weakness fully as a human being. Jesus, the only way he was going to make it was through fervent prayer. It says he prayed fervently with tears. Have you ever prayed that way? Where you're praying so hard, right, that, that you just have to cry and that you're broken and, and lost in your need for God. That's where Jesus was. That's where he lived. By passing the test of human suffering and temptation, something that Adam and Eve failed to do, something that Israel failed to do over and over again, something that every prophet, every priest, and every king of Israel failed to do over and over again. By passing this test of human suffering and temptation, to a greater degree than any other human being will ever undergo. Scripture says Jesus was made perfect. Amen? He was already flawless, but going through the temptations, going through the trials, made him the worthy Savior of the, of the world. That means there's no other test for him to go through. He fully obeys the will of the Father. Brothers and sisters, if, if you and I will be prepared to represent God well in this world, we need to be fully in touch with our human weakness, our frailty, and also our sin. For us... That means that we are a people who confess our sin, who repent regularly. It also means that we fully embrace our weakness. Talked about hide and go seek last week. We, we, we don't need to be sin hiders, weakness hiders, but we're revealers. We get it out there in such a way. We're so aware of our own weakness, of our own frailty, of our own sin, that we never, ever look down 
on another human being as if we are superior to them. That's important for us. It's important in the cultural climate that we're living in that's charged with racial strife. That's why any form, any way of looking at racial superiority in any way, whether that's individual, whether that's systemic, whether that's explicit, whether that's implicit, any way that we do that is damaging to the reality of who God is and how he has made his people image bearers. Like Jesus, we need to fully embrace our weakness in such a way that we live in solidarity with those broken all around us. So not only was Jesus prepared for ministry by fully identifying with humanity, but secondly, he was prepared by being secure in his identity as the beloved son of God. Amen? Now remember the scene again with me. Here's Jesus, this nondescript, no account party crasher from Nazareth in Galilee. He joins in with all the fine folks from Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized by John. Now, I guess the environment here is one of repentance, it's confession, it's excitement about the coming Messiah. So we can let a few Galileans pass by and that's okay. But then the ultimate shocking thing happens. As Jesus is coming out of the water, the heavens are ripped open. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove. I don't know what that looked like exactly, but there was a sense that God is opening the heavens and he is putting his blessing in a physical form on Jesus to show off his only begotten son. Now, now that's enough all by itself, but if you were there, you might look at that and say, what a coincidence, you'll never guess what happened by the Jordan last week. You may be able to say something happened, this crazy bird came out of the sky, there were clouds, and all of a sudden there weren't, and this happened, and it just happened to fall on this dude's head from Nazareth. Nazareth, can you believe it? So, so you might be able to get over that, you might be able to talk through that and say, crazy coincidence. But this next part, you can't get over this as a coincidence, can you? A voice comes from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. The glory of what is happening here is just too much. For anyone who struggles with the doctrine of the Trinity, this is one of those places where it shows up, where, where you can see it's so plain. We have one God in three persons, the blessed Trinity. We see the Father speaking to the Son and the Spirit coming down in the form of a dove. We see the glory of God revealed in this. But here's what I want to make sure you understand out of these verses. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Before he does any ministry, before he does anything but be a carpenter in Nazareth, he receives the ordination orders from his father and the power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows exactly who he was. He is affirmed in his unique sonship. 
And obviously, Jesus wasn't the only one who heard that voice, was he? There were other people there who heard that voice as well. So for a Jewish person, hearing these words, their minds would go right back to Psalm 2. They know their Old Testament, their Hebrew Bible. And in Psalm 2, verse 7, the scripture says, The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is said of this great son of God figure in Psalm 2, the one who uh, subdues the nations by his great power. And here is Jesus, this carpenter from Nazareth, and the voice is speaking to him, you are that son. They wouldn't have missed it. So before Jesus starts his ministry, he knows exactly who he is, even if no one else around is really getting it. One of the distinct things about Jesus' ministry that caused people to scratch their head and say, what is going on with him? Is that he consistently referred to God as his father. No one, no prophet before him had had such an intimate experience of the way they talked about God. This father-son relationship that Jesus relates over and over again, this intimacy that he has with the living God is different than anything they had seen before. And his whole life, and ministry is lived out of the reality and his understanding of his relationship with the Father. He's God's son sent to do God's will. Hope you're getting this. Now here's our application for us. You are not prepared to live for God or to do any work for God unless you're first secure in your identity as a child of God. Amen. That's where it has to start. You're not prepared to live for God or to do any ministry or work for him until you know that your identity is secure as a child of the living God. You're not working for it. You've been given it. You've been adopted into his family. Here's another thing I, I want you to see. When your starting place in the Christian life is anything else, anything other than accepting God's adopting grace and your place as his son or as his daughter, then you'll never live with the joy, with the satisfaction, and with the hope that God has designed you to live in. I don't know about y'all. I just think that's good right there. I like that. I'm going to say it one more time. When your starting place for the Christian life is anything other than accepting God's adopting grace and your place as his son or as his daughter, then you will never live with the joy, with the satisfaction and, and with the hope that God has designed you to live in. Oh, my, 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 my. Jesus knows who he is. Brothers and sisters, we've got to know who we are in God. Here, here's my question around that. Are you living 
out of the constant realization that you are a beloved daughter or son of God, or are you striving to please God in order to acquire his love? Brothers and sisters, that's not just a question for those who haven't yet come to Christ. That's a question for everybody in this room, everybody watching this, no matter where you're at in your relationship to God. If you're doing the latter, if you are striving to please God, to get his love, let me tell you right now, you will never do enough. You'll never achieve enough. You'll never be enough to erase those doubts that will always be there. So you'll never have the true peace and security that God wants you to have as a child of God. More more than that, if you're not living out of the realization of God's adopting grace, listen, you will constantly hide your sin from yourself and from others in a desperate attempt to put your shame behind you. You'll do that. We've all probably done that at one point or another. Maybe someone's going through that right now and the Holy Spirit's speaking to you even now on that. But but here's the thing. Shame clings real tight. There's no soap. There's no palm olive. There's no ivory. There's no kind of soap that can get the shame off of you. The only thing that can remove that shame from you is when you accept the finished work of Jesus Christ and are washed in his blood and it is finished. Shame comes off. But here's the truth. God's acceptance of you as a child was never meant to be based on your track record, but on the perfect track record of Jesus Christ. And only when we learn to live in our identity as children of God, will that finished work of the son of God allow us to live with the peace of God. Life and ministry are only possible because of the God-initiated relationship that empowers you to live a life that gives him glory. Here's the last thing I want you to see today. Jesus was prepared for his ministry by yielding his life to the Holy Spirit. I want to look at verse 10 here one more time. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. We've already established the fact that Jesus was fully human and Jesus didn't use his divine power in his life and ministry. You got to get this. Jesus didn't heal people, raise the dead, open blind eyes, walk on water, multiply loaves and fishes out of his divinity. He didn't do that. He did that because he was submitted to the work of the Holy Spirit in his humanity. And he only did what the Father instructed him to do. The Spirit descends on Jesus in verse 10, and then in verse 12, we see the Spirit directing Jesus. 
It says, at once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. I already talked about the verb that was used that drove him out or cast him out, uh, that purposely, purposefully emphasizes the idea of the Holy Spirit directing and controlling Jesus in that way. This is the key to the power of Jesus' calling and of his ministry. He's fully submitted to the will of the Father and the direction of the Holy Spirit. The very human Jesus is not making up things as he goes along. See, see, here you go. Jesus never pulls out his visa card that says, second person of the Godhead, I got some stuff to do. I'm going to do some side miracles, some little side johns over here. Look, hey, guys, come here. Look what I can do. I got my second person of the Godhead card. I'm going to pull it out and look what I can do. I'm going to show off. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Jesus never does that. He doesn't live out of that. He lives out of the brokenness of his human flesh, out of the weakness of his human flesh as one who is fully submitted to the Father and yielded to the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how Jesus lives. Yielding your life to the work of the Holy Spirit is the absolute prerequisite for anyone who will experience God working through them powerfully in this world. I'm going to go back to the beginning here. It's like Preparing for the paint job. It means that you allow God to smooth out the imperfections. You allow God to fill in the gaps and to set the proper boundaries. That's God's painter's tape. So that he can be clearly seen working in and through your life. God's transformational work in your life and mine is dependent on our willing submission to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. As I close, let's just review for a second how Jesus was uniquely prepared for his saving work. Although Jesus emptied himself of all of his divine prerogatives, he allowed himself to be fully prepared for saving ministry. Jesus willingly yielded his mind and his body by submitting himself to the Holy Spirit. He fully embraced his human weakness. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus struggled with the things that we struggle with in our human weakness. But he fully embraced that weakness and lived out of his identity as God's Son. So let me ask you this question today. What areas of your life is God calling you to yield more fully to the control of the Holy Spirit? I want you to take just a minute to think about that. Let's go back to this analogy of painting. Are you covering up pain? Shame, grief, or frustration by filling in 
gaps and coping with difficulties in ways that you know don't honor God? Are you inviting God to sand down those hard places in your character that need his touch? Or are you insisting on letting me be me? And finally, are you submitting to his life-giving boundaries, God's painter's tape? Or do you throw off those limits and find life in things that actually bring death and destruction to your soul? Just a minute, we're going to stand together and worship God. But I pray that you won't let this time go by, this day go by, without really thinking about how Jesus was uniquely prepared, but how God also is calling you specifically now to be prepared for a life that knows the peace of God, the love of God, and can work effectively under the power of the Spirit of God. So let's stand together right now. I'm going to pray. The rest of the worship team can come up as well. I want you to think about what area God is touching in your life now. You may want to kneel down as we worship. You may want to come to the front. But I want everyone, by God's grace, to do business with the living God today. To lay your stuff before him and invite him to prepare you to be an effective, powerful vessel for his good work. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you today for the wonder of Jesus the one and only unique Savior and Son of God. But we also thank you, Lord, that you have adopted so many children, so many gathered here, so many watching, and there's many more that you want to gather. You adopt them as your sons, as your daughters. And Lord, I pray that each one of us will come to you honestly and say, Lord, I'm right in this place. You know exactly what you need to do in my heart, in my life. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make us spirit-empowered, adopted sons and daughters who honor God and see your name glorified through our lives, individually and together as his body. Lord, do your work and glorify your name. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.